0: Steve, thank you, my friend. Uh, There's a cowboy song that's called I Am My Own Grandpa. And uh, somehow it works out that a guy married somebody and when they got done with the whole thing, it turns out he was his own grandpa. And I thought about that song when you were telling folks how we were related to each other. So you might be my grandpa, I don't know. (laughs) Well, what a joy to be here, friends. My goodness, Uh, Grand Prairie Bible Church uh, was what it was called when I was here in 1978 to 82. And uh, Pastor John Wex taught me the Bible for four years, uh, helped me remarkably. Uh, As Steve mentioned, when we were with Alaska Bible College, uh, Grand Prairie Bible Church supported us. And let me say, they had one third of our support a huge amount of our support, which is a massive joy to us. Point of real anxiety too, in case, you know, the mission's chairman would decide, hey, we don't wanna help this guy anymore. So uh, it was a a major blessing. I so appreciate being a part of it and all that you guys did for us over all of those years. As Steve mentioned, my father-in-law, Bob Kruckerberg is here. He's the one who led me to Grand Prairie Bible Church uh, back all those years ago. I've been married to his oldest daughter for 44 and one half years. And uh, this man has shown me nothing but kindness for all those decades. And I'm very, very grateful for him and for his kindness to me. So as Steve mentioned, we have a table out there, East West Ministries. We're doing church planting in places where it's illegal to plant churches. And so basically we do house churches under a tree, in an apartment, someone's house, in a business, three to 20 people who are worshiping God, who are getting baptized, who are sharing Christ, who are studying the word, who are helping each other. Their pastors are typically people who are farming in the daytime and sharing Christ at night. Uh, they are people who have some daytime job and just deeply dedicated the work of Christ. And we're, we're, we're really grateful for, it, for these people. And literally in our ministry, we have 200 full-time expat ministries, uh, missionaries, and who knows how many part-time nationals working around the world, and and these are the people who are getting it done for Christ. So we're very grateful for them. So friends, today uh, I want to read to you and speak to you from a very familiar story. Uh, Luke read part of it earlier today in Luke. And I'm going to read the whole thing now. And uh, I appreciate all you've done to coordinate the songs, full of shepherd stuff in it and the story. And uh, today is uh, a, a shepherd day for for all of us. So I want to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, uh, obviously the very famous uh, uh, Christmas story, and then think through it with you and, and hopefully focus on something that you may not think about every time when when you hear this story. Here's what Luke says to us. <clears throat> in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, And all who heard it wondered at these things, which they were told by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. Let me pray for us a moment, please, friends. Father, we bless you for your goodness. We bless you for your gift. We praise you that you have recorded this event more than 2,000 years ago and faithfully watched over the text until it got down to us these millennia later. Thank you so much that you are so committed to communicating with us. And I'm praying today, Father, that we would be people who are committed to listening to you. Uh, Don't don't let us dishonor you by hearing your word and leaving unchanged. Don't let us be people who fail to respond to what you said. So we commit our time to you. We need your guidance in it. We pray your spirit would teach us. My father, I'm very clear. I have nothing written on this paper that will help unless your spirit will help. So we entrust ourselves to you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In The summer of 1969, I worked as a wheat harvester. I was 16 years old. I went to Southern Oklahoma, joined a wheat harvest crew. And we traveled for the next three months following the wheat as it ripened up through America until we got to northern Montana. It's a three-month experience. It was an extremely profound experience for me. And as Steve mentioned, I wrote a book about it. The book is called Travel Required. I'm not here to sell it. I'm here to give away three copies, one here and two on the table. You're free to grab one. But I'm telling this story to say this. The people who work on a wheat harvest crew are called Wheaties. And they are typically very uh, disreputable people. They're the kind of people who, when they're in town, the farmers send their daughters to grandma's house and lock their tool sheds. The Wheaties are like carnival barkers. Uh, They're not the kind of people who are really trusted. I was on a crew of eight people. Two of us were high school students. One of us was a college student. And five of us were people who were not to be trusted. They were difficult folks. Uh, They had a string of marriages, a string of children, a string of lost jobs, a string of fights, a string of trouble in their background that you cannot imagine. They were marginalized people. They were on the edges. They were on the margins. They were like carnival barkers. I told you that story to say, today's passage I wanna focus on an element of this passage that deals with marginalized people. I want to talk about the whole passage, but I want to focus in the end on on some marginalized people, some sort of carnival barkers that that are involved here. I want to begin by saying that God is a tireless lover of people on the margins. God is a tireless lover of people on the margins. Uh, We ourselves are people on the margins. We came into this world without Christ. That could not be a worse situation than possibly could be. You might be an extremely wealthy person who has season tickets to the Cowboys. You might be just that wealthy, but spiritually you started life on the margins. We all start life on the margins and some people are still there. We ourselves are there in some ways. Let me ask you to open up Luke two again. I wanna talk through this briefly and then talk about some people on the margins Caesar Augustus, who ruled from 27 years before the birth of Christ, that is 27 B.C. to 14 years after the birth of Christ, calls for this census that Judy was reading about today. First sentence census while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Most Bible scholars think it was in December of 5 B.C. or January of 4 B.C., Jesus may not have been born on the 25th. I would not say that if there were children in here, but he may not have been born on the 25th. Sometime in 54 BC in the winter is when he was born. And that's when this event takes place. A man named Joseph, who we believe was a carpenter, lived in Galilee. The rabbis used to say, if a man would be righteous, let him live in Jerusalem. And if he would be rich, let him live in Galilee. So there was a great disdain for people from Galilee. And the, uh, the disciple Andrew said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This was a wrong side of the tracks place, spiritually speaking. And that's where, Na- that, that's where Joseph and Mary were from. They were from the wrong side of tracks. They came down to Ju- Judea, to Bethlehem, the city of David. If you read first Samuel ver- chapter six, I'm sorry, chapter 16, you'll see that David was born and raised in Bethlehem. David, who became the king, the one who was promised that your son will sit on the throne forever. Born and raised in Bethlehem. Now, this town means a house of bread, Bet Lechem, the house of bread. John 6, Jesus is the bread of life. And so the bread of life is born in the house of bread, and he has come to the place where God called him to be. The prophecy is fulfilled. Friends, he had the right parents, and he was born in the right town. Tell me two things that you have less control over than your parents and where you were born. You have no control. My parents are my parents. No way to change that. I was born in Valentine, Nebraska. Can't undo it. It's just what's real. And the prophet said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. He was born in the right place. He was born to the right parents. His father, Joseph, is a very sterling man. If you read Matthew 1, you'll realize what a a man of incredible integrity, remarkable person. You know, God was looking for an amazing woman to be the mother of Jesus. But he was also looking for an amazing man to be the stepfather of Jesus. It's not a job I would want. It's not a job I would sign up for. But here's this sterling man of integrity who becomes the stepfather of Jesus. And he is he is the right lineage, he's born in the right place. And so he and Mary come down, you know the story, they're engaged, the betrothal period, she's pregnant with this child, the son of God, and they come to where he is born. It says she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in claws and laid him in a manger. Now friends, he was firstborn in the sense that he was oldest. He's also called the firstborn of creation, not meaning that he was created or there was a time he didn't exist, but meaning that he is the preeminent being in creation. And Jesus is one of those very few people who drew his first breath twice. He drew it here for the first time in Bethlehem. And more than three decades later, he drew his first first breath again in another cave in Jerusalem, eight miles north. This is the first time he was wrapped in claws and laid in a rough place. More than three decades later, he'd be wrapped in claws and laid in a rough place. First time this happened in Bethlehem. The second time about eight miles north, it happened in Jerusalem, a remarkably close distance between these two things. And he he himself experienced this twice. Verse eight, there were some shepherds out in the field at night. Now, friends, this Verse means it was dark, it was night. Uh, What a a great observation, Dave, you're a brilliant man. But it also means, I think, that it was spiritually dark. It's been a long time since they heard from God. It's a situation in which most of the leaders in the Jewish nation are not really pursuing God. They're pursuing self-promotion, they're pursuing the 600 and some commandments that they had to try and please God. There's not a whole lot of people pursuing the heart of God at this time. And spiritually, it's a big struggle. But into this darkness comes, verse 9, the glory of the Lord and the shining of this angel that appeared. He said to the shepherds, don't be afraid. Now, friends, these were were very valiant men. Think about this. They were used to fighting wild animals with sticks. (laughs) They were used to fighting off wild animals from their flocks with sticks. These are not timid people. But this incredible shining caused them to be terribly afraid. I don't know if you could imagine setting out some night, maybe in your backyard, it's pretty quiet and pretty dark, and you're looking at the stars, and all of a sudden there's this vicious shining of white light and an angel. It would be terrifying. It would be terrifying. But they said to him, please don't be terrified because we're here with an incredible message. Good news of great joy for all the people. Good news, the gospel. It's built out of a situation in that time where there were many, many city states where your city would have a wall around it and there'd be another city with a wall around it and these two cities would get in a fight and then one of the cities would win and the runner would come back from the battle and he would run into your city and say, good news, we have won. We're not gonna be taken captive our wives and our daughters will not be raped. We will not lose all of our belongings. We will not be deported to someplace. Good news. We win. This is great joy. It's great joy for all of us. Well, here's the angel saying, good news. The Savior's coming. Great joy. It's for all people. Everybody is going to hear the message from the angels. Everybody has a response that they need to make. It's for all the people, because today in the city of David, in the, in the house of bread, the bread of life has been born. He's the Savior, simply meaning, as you know, the one who rescues, the one who does for us what we can't do for ourselves, the one who reaches in when we're going down for the last time and brings us back to God. Friends, when I was five years old, I jumped in the wrong end of a swimming pool. I couldn't swim yet, I was talking to a friend of mine, I went and jumped in the pool and I went down and I went down realizing I'm in great trouble and I said to myself, I remember this very clearly, when I get to the top, I'm gonna scream. But when I got to the top, I took a big gulp of air and went back down again. And I did this about, I don't know how many times, between five and seven times. And finally, the lifeguard realizes I'm in trouble and she runs over and she reaches out. Literally, she didn't get in the pool. She reached out and took my hand and put me on the edge. She saved my life. I was, I was drowning. One foot from the edge, I was drowning. Nothing I could do for myself. I couldn't swim. I couldn't think. I couldn't shout. I was going to die. She did for me what I couldn't do for myself. The message is there's a Savior coming to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Pay for your sin on the cross. There's been about uh, 120 billion people alive in the world since the beginning of time. and We were all in a line waiting to go up on the cross to be killed for our sins. And when I got to the front of the line to go up on the cross to be punished for my sin, Jesus said, Dave, stand over here. And he went up and he paid for my sin. In my place, instead of me, as my substitute, he had no sin of his own. It was mine that he paid for. If you don't understand substitution, friends, you don't understand the Christian faith. The Christian faith is about a lamb who was slain instead of you. And he says to us, the angel says to them, the Savior is coming. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who's going to sit on the throne of David forever. And he's also the Lord. He's also the one who has full authority to tell us what to do. Remember when your kids were two and three? or five and four, and one of them would say, you're not the boss of me. Well, <laughs> Jesus is the boss of me. He has the right to tell me what I need to do with my life in response to him. So he's, the angel simply said, there's gonna be this baby there, and then this massive multitude praising God, giving glory to God in the highest. The reality is that God is a being who exists in brilliant light. He is a God of glory. He's a spirit. And if you're in his presence, there is glory. And this glory was shining out of them. You know the word Shekinah, the the brilliant shining glory of God. And that's what they were experiencing in this night as the brilliant shining glory of God was shining out there. The baby himself was not exuding it at this time. And by the way, Jesus is not a baby anymore. (laughs) This is. Two millennia ago, he's not a baby anymore. But at that time, the glory was not shining out of him. Verse 15, the shepherds say, let's go straight to Bethlehem, see this thing that's happened. And they came in a hurry and found the baby in a manger. They made known what they had seen. The remarkable thing about this is these people heard a message from God and they responded in a flash. They came in a hurry and they went straight. I was thinking about this in my own devotional time today just saying to myself am I a person who's in a hurry to do what God said am I going straight to what he said am I on a beeline for what he said and these shepherds heard from him and they went straight to where they were supposed to and they went in a hurry they were people who responded to what they heard verse 17 they shared what they heard they were witnesses and then they returned home glorifying God because everything happened just exactly like God said it would happen Everything happens, friends, just exactly like God says it will happen. Some of what we're waiting for, some of it's not here yet, but it happens like God said it would happen. So with that as a way of background, let me focus on one one thing as we we finish this message today. This is the greatest story ever told. There's no story like it. We were all going down for the last time when Jesus showed up. Our lives were not as bad as they could be, but they were as bad off as they could be. I could have been a worse person before Christ but I couldn't have been in in a worse condition before Christ because I was a sinner separated from God, going to spend eternity without him In, in hell, which is described as a place of torment and loneliness and heat and pain. People chew on their tongues. It's just, it's just unimaginable torture. That's where I was headed with nothing I could do about it. I could have been a worse person, but I couldn't have been worse off. And into that setting, God sent his son to give me the grace, this greatest story that ever told. So I want to circle back to look at one set of people here, and that is the shepherds. Uh, The title of this message is Angels, Shepherds, and Carnival Barkers. I might add angels, shepherds, carnival barkers, and Wheaties. Because the shepherds of that time, friends, were, were very despised people. They lived away from others they did menial, menial uh, labor they were people who touched the dead bodies of sheep which made them ceremonially unclean they couldn't go to the tabernacle they couldn't do the feasts they couldn't go to the synagogue they were just out there working and they were clearly a despised group of people uh, they were people who were on the margins they were people who were not valued they're like they're like weedies they're on the margins But verse 10 says, this good news is for all the people. It's for the up and outers and the down and outers. It's for the people who have tickets to the cowboys, and it's for people who are on the margins. It's for people who are up and out or down and out. Verse 11, Jesus was born for you, the shepherds. He was born for you, the marginalized people. If you were a shepherd in that day, a Jewish leader would not give you the time of day. But God would give you his son. Would not give you the time of day, but God would give you his son. God has been a champion and a lover of the marginalized ever since there were marginalized people. Let me give you some examples of this. Uh, Strangers, widows, orphans, sojourners, poor, prisoners, and sick. These are all the people God tells us to go after and help. These are all the people he has compassion for, people who live on the margins, people who struggle, people who haven't got it all together. God has massive compassion for them. When my son was in college, uh, this is uh, two decades ago, he was an MC for the Campus Crusade for Christ gathering at the University of Idaho. And every Thursday night, about 400 kids would come out and they would have uh, a speaker and some music and whatever else they did. And my son was the MC of it. He and this other girl would stand on stage. They were funny, they were articulate, they were, they were people who sort of whipped up the crowd. And I went one night to see him do this, and, and he was funny and he was articulate. And it, it was really uh, pretty amazing to me to see my son who uh, barely came out of his bedroom <laughs> Here he is on the platform doing this. But here's what really made me proud of my son that night. When that ended, he came off the platform and one by one by one by one, marginalized students came up to my son and he gave them a warm touch. Kids who by looking at them, by watching their demeanor by watching their loneliness, by watching them be just by themselves, came up to my son, Ross, and he gave them a kind touch and a kind word and a kind conversation. And I could tell that every Thursday night after he got off the platform, these marginalized kids came to see him because Ross gave them a kind touch. He's a man of remarkable compassion today. has a handicapped daughter today with a mental ability of about a six-month-old, and he just shows a remarkable compassion for this for this girl who's now 14 years old. He gave a warm touch to people who were marginalized. The Pharisees said, if you're marginalized, either you or your parents sinned. (laughs) Jesus said, I'm going to give you grace. It wasn't you, it wasn't your parents. It was so that I would get glory by giving you grace. Let me read you a list. And, you know, in seminary, they taught us never to read lists. But I'm going to do it anyway if Steve will not tell Dallas Seminary about this so that I don't lose my marginal standing with him. (laughs) Here's the list of people that Jesus encountered in the Gospels to whom he gave grace. Demon-possessed, lepers, children, blind, deaf, dumb, crippled, paralyzed, Samaritans, Gentiles, soldiers, Galileans, women, ceremonially unclean people, a bleeding woman, epileptics, sinners, tax collectors, political zealots, prostitutes, convicted felons, Pharisees, Sadducees, Roman rulers, and people who were far, far, far away from God. Now, in this culture, when you hear me read women in that list, uh, there may be some kind of, what, what are you saying? Uh, In that culture, women were were not elevated to the level of men. And uh, as you remember, John chapter 4, the disciples came and said, why are you talking to a woman and a Samaritan at that? A good rabbi wouldn't be doing that. Jesus was a different kind of rabbi. He was the one who had compassion for anybody encountered. And as I mentioned in the Old Testament, God gave commands to have compassion for the sojourner, for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, for the prisoner. God is the champion of the marginalized people. And in AD 30, if you were marginalized, the Jewish people wouldn't give you the time of day, but Jesus would give you grace. And in 2018, if you are marginalized, other people may look down on you, but Jesus will give you grace. And in 2018, if you know Christ, he is calling you, he is calling me to be people who give grace to people living on the margins. We're not called to condone behavior. There's a lot of bad behavior that gets you to the margins in many, many cases, but we are called to show grace to people who who are living on the margins. Here's the big idea I want to leave with you today. The gift of a savior is for everyone, even for, and maybe especially for, people on the margins. Even for, and maybe especially for, people on the margins. Friends, I think the most Christ-like thing I ever did was before I knew Christ. It was in fifth grade. Cody, Wyoming, we had a boy in our class named John. He was on the margins. Everyone treated him horribly. I don't know why, but it was just popular to treat John horribly. So when my birthday came, uh, I felt compassion for John. I invited him to my house. He was the only one at my birthday party. My mom gave us each 50 cents. In those days, that was a king's ransom. We went to the corner store and literally filled two bags with candy. John and I had the greatest evening you can imagine. And the next day, I was on the margin with John because the word got out that I took John to my house for a birthday party. Probably the most Christ-like thing I ever did. The next year in sixth grade, uh, I probably did the most un like thing I've ever done. I was walking home. Across the street was a girl named Peggy. She was on the margins. For reasons I still don't understand, I picked up a piece of gravel and threw it at her. Just because I'd been trained to treat with disdain people on the margins. Now friends, I didn't hurl a rock at her head. I just kind of half-heartedly threw some gravel across the street at her. But in the kindness of God, she went home and told her mother. In the further kindness of God, her mother called my dad. My dad had a chat with me and then had a spank with me and then marched me over to Peggy's house where Peggy came to the door and I apologized to her. One of the great regrets of my life that I harmed a marginalized girl. That is so unlike Jesus. That is so unlike God. The good news is for everyone, even for and perhaps especially for those on the margins. Let me suggest three applications that we close, friends. Since the gift is for everyone, he's for you. Don't care where you are on the spectrum. Don't care where you're on the spectrum. Since the gift is for everyone, he's for you. Number two, since the gift is for everyone, he is for us to share with everyone. Anybody, wherever they are. If you think they're on the margins, it doesn't matter. That's not even a category to think about. It's just a question of do they know Christ or don't they? And number three, we need to be like the shepherds in worshiping Christ and worshiping God for what he did for us. I want to close today with a quote that I find incredibly compelling. It's by a man named Frederick Buchner. He wrote a book called The Hungering Dark. He's passed away now. Uh, Just a brilliant, brilliant man. In fact, this quote is so compelling to me, friends, that I made 50 copies and put out there on the table. I hope you'll take one home. Uh, This this quote is just, in, in my mind, is a powerful summary of what God did for us and what God's up to and what God did in Luke chapter two. Here's what he said. Speaking of God's people, he said, once they have seen Jesus in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of mankind. God is in the wild pursuit of mankind, even for and maybe especially for the people on the margins. Let me pray for us. Father, I bless you that Jesus came after me. Lord, it's quite clear in my mind. it's, It's even more clear to you, but it's very clear in my mind that I was going down that my life was as bad off as it could be, that I was on the margins of the margins. It's very clear to me what you did. And I thank you. I pray for us, Father, that we'd be people who accept your gift and people who share your gift. Thank you for your wild pursuit of humankind. Thank you for your wild pursuit of us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.